Section 11 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Italy Revisited, Part 1. I waited in Paris until after the elections for the new chamber. They took place on the 14th of October. As only after one has learned that the famous attempt of Marshal Mamahon and his ministers to drive the French nation to the poles like a flock of huddling sheep, each with the white ticket of an official candidate round his neck, had not achieved the success which the energy of the process might have promised. Only then it was possible to draw a long breath and deprive the Republican Party of such support as might have been conveyed in one's sympathetic presence. Seriously speaking, too, the weather had been enchanting. There were Italian fancies to be gathered without leaving the banks of the Seine. Day after day the air was filled with golden light, and even those chalkish vistas of the Parisian Boccartier assumed the iridescent tints of autumn. Autumn weather in Europe is often such a very sorry affair that a fair-minded American will have it on his conscience to call attention to a rainless and radiant October. The echoes of the electoral strife kept me company for a while after starting upon that abbreviated journey to Turin, which, as you leave Paris at night, in a train unprovided with encouragements to slumber, is a singular mixture of the odious and the charming. The charming, indeed, I think, prevails, for the dark half of the journey is the least interesting. The morning light ushers you into the romantic gorges of the Jura, and after a big bowl of café au lait at Coulos, you may compose yourself comfortably for the climax of your spectacle. The day before leaving Paris, I met a French friend who had just returned from a visit to a Tuscan country seat where he had been watching the vintage. Italy, he said, is more lovely than words can tell. And France, steeped in this electoral turmoil, seems no better than a bear garden. The part of the bear garden through which you travel as you approach the Mont Cenis seemed to me that day very beautiful. The autumn colouring, thanks to the absence of rain, had been vivid and crisp and the vines that swung their low garlands between the mulberries round about Chambéry looked like long festoons of coral and amber. The frontier station at Mordan, on the further side of the Monsigny Tunnel, is a very ill-regulated place, but even the most irritable of tourists meeting it on his way southward will be disposed to consider it good-naturedly. There was far too much bustling and scrambling, and the facilities afforded to you for the obligatory process of ripping open your luggage before the offices of the Italian Custom House are much scantier than should be. But for myself, there is something that deprecates irritation in the shabby green and grey uniforms of all the Italian officials who stand loafing about and watching the northern invaders scramble back into marching order. Wearing an administrative uniform doesn't necessarily spoil a man's temper, as in France one is sometimes led to believe 
for these excellent underpaid Italians carry theirs as lightly as possible, and their answers to your inquiries don't in the least bristle with rapiers, buttons and cockades. After leaving Mordain, you slide straight downhill into the Italy of your desire, from which point the road edges after the grand manor along those great precipices that stand shoulder to shoulder in a prodigious perpendicular file till they finally admit you to a distant glimpse of the ancient capital of Piedmont. Turin is no city of a name to conjure with, and I pay an extravagant tribute to subjective emotion in speaking of it as ancient. But if the place is less bravely peninsular than Florence and Rome, at least it is more in the scenic tradition than New York and Paris. And while I paced the great arcades and looked at the fourth-rate shop windows, I didn't scruple to cultivate a shameless optimism. Relatively speaking, Turin touches a chord. But there is, after all, no reason in a large collection of shabbily stuccoed houses, disposed in a rigidly rectangular manner, for passing a day of deep, still gaiety. The only reason, I am afraid, is the old superstition of Italy. That property in the very look of the written word, the evocation of myriad images that makes any lover of the arts take Italian satisfactions on easier terms than any others. The written word stands for something that eternally tricks us. We juggle to our credulity even with such inferior apparatus as is offered to our hand at Turin. I roamed all the morning under the tall porticos, thinking it sufficient joy to take note of the soft warm air, of that local colour of things that is at once so broken and so harmonious, and of the comings and goings, the physiognomy and manners of the excellent Turinese. I had opened the old book again. The old charm was in the style. I was in a more delightful world. I saw nothing surpassingly beautiful or curious, but your true taste of the most seasoned of dishes finds well nigh the whole mixture in any mouthful. Above all, on the threshold of Italy, he knows again the solid and perfectly definable pleasure of finding himself among the traditions of the grand style in architecture. It must be said that we have still to go there to recover the sense of the domiciliary mass. In northern cities there are beautiful houses, picturesque and curious houses, sculptured gables that hang over the street, charming bay windows, hooded doorways, elegant proportions, and a profusion of delicate ornament. But a good specimen of an old Italian palazzo has a nobleness that is all its own. We laugh at Italian palaces, at their peeling paint, their nudity, their dreariness, but they have the great palatial quality, elevation and extent. And they make of smaller things the apparent abode of pygmies, they round their great arches and interspace their huge windows with a proud indifference to the cost of materials. These grand proportions, the colossal basements, 
the doorways that seem meant for cathedrals, the faraway cornices, in part by contrast to humble and bourgeois expression to interiors founded on the sacrifice of the whole to the part, and in which the air of grandeur depends largely on the help of the upholsterer. At Turin, my first feeling was really one of renewed shame for our meaner architectural manners. If the Italians at bottom despise the rest of mankind and regard them as barbarians, disinherited of the tradition of form, the idea proceeds largely, no doubt, from our living in comparative molehills. They alone were ready to build their civilization. An impression which, on coming back to Italy, I find even stronger than when it was first received, is that of the contrast between the fecundity of the great artistic period and the vulgarity there of the genius of today. The first few hours spent on Italian soil are sufficient to renew it, and the question I allude to is, historically speaking, one of the oddest. That the people who but 300 years ago had the best taste in the world should now have the worst. That having produced the noblest, loveliest, costliest works, they should now be given up to the manufacture of objects at once ugly and paltry. That the race of which Michelangelo and Raphael, Leonardo and Titian were characteristic, should have no other title to distinction than third-rate genre pictures and catchpenny statues. All this is a frequent perplexity to the observer of actual Italian life. The flower of great art in these latter years ceased to bloom very powerfully anywhere, but nowhere does it seem so drooping and withered as in the shadow of the immortal embodiments of the old Italian genius. You go into a church or a gallery and feast your fancy upon a splendid picture or an exquisite piece of sculpture, and on issuing from the door that has submitted you to the beautiful past, are confronted with something that has the effect of a very bad joke. The aspect of your lodging, the carpets, the curtains, the upholstery, in general, with their crude and violent colouring and their vulgar material, the trumpery things in the shops, the extreme bad taste of the dress of the women, the cheapness and baseness of every attempt at decoration in the cafes and railway stations, the hopeless frivolity of everything that pretends to be a work of art. All this modern crudity runs riot over the relics of the great period. We can do a thing for the first time but once. It is but once for all that we can have a pleasure in its freshness. This is a law not on the whole, I think, to be regretted, for we sometimes learn to know things better by not enjoying them too much. It is certain, however, at the same time, that a visitor who has worked off the immediate ferment for this inexhaustibly interesting country has by no means entirely drained the cup. After thinking of Italy as historical and artistic, it will do him no great harm to think of her for a while as panting both for a future and for a balance at the bank. Aspirations supposedly much at variance with the Byronic, the Ruskinian, the artistic, poetic, aesthetic manner of considering our eternally attaching peninsula. He may grant, 
I don't say it is absolutely necessary, that its actual aspects and economics are ugly, prosaic, provokingly out of relation to the diary and the album. It is nevertheless true that at the point things have come to, modern Italy in a manner imposes herself. I hadn't been many hours in the country before that truth assailed me, and I may add that the first irritation passed, I found myself able to accept it. For if we think, nothing is more easy to understand than an honest ire on the part of the young Italy of today at being looked at by all the world as a kind of soluble pigment. Young Italy, preoccupied with its economical and political future, must be heartily tired of being admired for its eyelashes and its pose. In one of Thackeray's novels occurs a mention of a young artist who sent to the Royal Academy a picture representing a contadino dancing with a trastevarina at the door of a locanda to the music of a piferaro. It is this attitude and with these conventional accessories that the world has hitherto seen fit to represent young Italy. And one doesn't wonder that if the youth has any spirit, he should at last begin to resent our insufferable aesthetic patronage. He has established a line of tram cars in Rome, from the Porta del Popolo to the Ponte Molle, and it is one of these democratic vehicles that I seem to see him taking his triumphant course down the vista of the future. I won't pretend to rejoice with him any more than I really do. I won't pretend, as a sentimental tourist to say about it all, as if it were the setting of an Italia or the border of a Roman scarf, to like it. Like it or not, as we may, it is evidently destined to be. I see a new Italy in the future which in many important respects will equal, if not surpass, the most enterprising sections of our native land. Perhaps by that time, Chicago and San Francisco will have acquired a pose, and their sons and daughters will dance at the doors of the Locande. However this may be, the accomplished schism between the old order and the new is the promptest moral of a fresh visit to this ever-suggestive part of the world. The old has become more and more a museum, preserved and perpetuated in the midst of the new, but without any further relation to it, it must be admitted, indeed, that such a relation is considerable, than that of the stock on his shelves to the shopkeeper, or of the siren of the south to the showman who stands before his booth. More than once, as we move about nowadays in the Italian cities, there seems to pass before our eyes a vision of the coming years. It represents to our satisfaction an Italy united and prosperous, but altogether scientific and commercial. The Italy, indeed, that we sentimentalise and romance about was an ardently mercantile country. Though I suppose it loved not its ledgers less, but its frescoes and altarpieces more. Scattered through this paradise regained of trade, this country of a thousand ports, we see a large number of beautiful buildings in which the endless series of dusky pictures are darkening, dampening, fading, failing through the years. By the doors of the beautiful buildings are little turnstiles at which there sit a great many uniformed men to whom the visitor pays a tenpenny fee.
Inside, in the vaulted and frescoed chambers, the art of Italy lies buried as in a thousand mausoleums. It is well taken care of. It is constantly copied. Sometimes it is restored. As in the case of that beautiful boy figure of Andrea del Sarto at Florence, which may be seen at the gallery of the Uffizi with its honourable duskiness quite peeled off, and heaven knows what raw, bleeding cuticle laid bare. One evening lately, near the same Florence, in the soft twilight, I took a stroll among those encircling hills on which the mass of villas are mingled with the vaporous olives. Presently I arrived where three roads met at a wayside shrine, in which before some pious daub of an old-time Madonna a little votive lamp glimmered through the evening air. The hour, the atmosphere, the place, the twinkling taper, the sentiment of the observer, the thought that someone had been rescued here from an assassin or from some other peril, and had set up a little grateful altar in consequence against the yellow plaster ball of a tangled podere, all this led me to approach the shrine with a reverent and emotional step. I drew near it, but after a few steps I paused. I became aware of an incongruous odour. It seemed to me that the evening air was charged with a perfume which, though to a certain extent familiar, had not hitherto associated itself with rustic frescoes and wayside altars. I wondered. I gently sniffed. And the question so put left me no doubt. The odour was that of petroleum. The vote of taper was nourished with the essence of Pennsylvania. I confess that I burst out laughing, and a picturesque contadino wending his way homeward in the dusk stared at me as if I were an iconoclast. He noticed the petroleum only, I imagined, to snuff it fondly up. But to me, the thing served as a symbol of the Italy of the future. There is a horse car from the Porta del Popolo to the Ponte Molle, and the Tuscan shrines are fed with kerosene. 2. If it is very well, meanwhile, to come to Turin first, it is better still to go to Genoa afterwards. Genoa is the tightest topographic tangle in the world, which even a second visit helps you little to straighten out. In the wonderful, crooked, twisting, climbing, soaring, burrowing Genoese alleys, the traveller is really up to his neck in the old Italian sketchability. The pride of the place, I believe, is a port of great capacity, and the bequest of the late Duke of Galliera, who left four million of dollars for the purpose of improving and enlarging it, will doubtless do much towards converting it into one of the great commercial stations of Europe. But as after leaving my hotel the afternoon I arrived, I wandered for a long time at hazard through the tortuous byways of the city, I said to myself, not without an accent of private triumph, that here at last was something it would be almost impossible to modernise. I had found my hotel in the first place extremely entertaining, the Croce di Malta, as it is called, established in a gigantic palace on the edge of the swarming and not over-clean harbour. It was the biggest house I had ever entered, 
The basement alone would have contained a dozen American caravanserais. I met an American gentleman in the vestibule who, as he had indeed a perfect right to be, was annoyed by its troublesome dimensions. One was a quarter of an hour ascending out of the basement and desired to know if it were a fair sample of the Genoese inns. It appeared an excellent specimen of Genoese architecture generally. So far as I observed, there were few houses perceptibly smaller than this titanic tavern. I lunched in a dusky ballroom whose ceiling was vaulted, frescoed and gilded with the fatal facility of a couple of centuries ago, and which looked out upon another ancient house front equally huge and equally battered, separated from it only by a little wedge of dusky space. One of the principal streets, I believe, of Genoa, whence out of dim abysses the population sent up to the windows, I had to crane out very far to see it, a perpetual clattering, shuffling, chaffering sound. Issuing forth presently into this crevice of a street, I found myself up to my neck in that element of the rich and strange, as to the visible and reproducible effect, I mean, for the love of which one revisits Italy. It offered itself indeed in a variety of colours, some of which were not remarkable for their freshness or purity, but their combined charm was not to be resisted, and the picture glowed with the rankly human side of southern low life. Genoa, as I have hinted, is the crookedest and most incoherent of cities. Tossed about on the sides and crests of a dozen hills, it is seamed with gullies and ravines that bristle with those innumerable palaces, for which we have heard from our earliest years that the place is celebrated. These great structures, with their mottled and faded complexions, lift their big ornamental cornices to a tremendous height in the air, where, in a certain indescribably forlorn and desolate fashion overtopping each other, they seem to reflect the twinkle and glitter of the warm Mediterranean. Down in the basements, in the close crepuscular alleys, the people are forever moving to and fro, or standing in their cavernous doorways in their dusky crowded shops, calling, chattering, laughing, lamenting, living their lives in the conversational Italian fashion. I had for a long time had no such vision of possible social pressure. I hadn't for a long time seen people elbowing each other so closely or swarming so thickly out of populous hives. A traveller is often moved to ask himself whether it has been worthwhile to leave his home whatever his home may have been, only to encounter new forms of human suffering, only to be reminded that toil and privation, hunger and sorrow and sordid effort are the portion of the mass of mankind. To travel is, as it were, to go to the play, to attend a spectacle. And there is something heartless in stepping forth into foreign streets to feast on character, when character consists simply of the slightly different costume in which labour and want present themselves. These reflections were forced upon me as I strolled as through a twilight patched with colour and charged with stale smells. But after a time they ceased to bear me company. The reason of this 
I think, is because, at least to foreign eyes, the sum of Italian misery is on the whole less than the sum of the Italian knowledge of life. That people should thank you with a smile of striking sweetness for the gift of tuppence is a proof certainly of extreme and constant destitution, but keeping in mind the sweetness, it also attests to an enviable ability not to be depressed by circumstances. I know that this may possibly be great nonsense, that half the time we are reclaiming the fine quality of the Italian smile, the creature so constitutive of physiognomic radiance may be in a sullen frenzy of impatience and pain. Our observation in any foreign land is extremely superficial, and our remarks are happily not addressed to the inhabitants themselves, who will be sure to exclaim upon the impudence of the fancy picture. The other day I visited a very picturesque old city upon a mountain top, where in the course of my wanderings I arrived at an old disused gate in the ancient town wall. The gate hadn't been absolutely forfeited, but the recent completion of a modern road down the mountain led most vehicles away to another egress. The grass-grown pavement, which wound into the plain by a hundred graceful twists and plunges, was now given up to the ragged contadini and their donkeys, and to such wayfarers as were not alarmed at the disrepair into which it had fallen. I stood in the shadow of the tall old gateway admiring the scene, looking to right and left at the wonderful walls of the little town, perched on the edge of a shaggy precipice, at the circling mountains over against them, at the road dipping downward among the chestnuts and olives. There was no one within sight but a young man who slowly trudged upward with his coat slung over his shoulder and his hat upon his ear in the manner of a cavalier in an opera. Like the operatic performer, too, he sang as he came. The spectacle generally was operatic. And as his vocal flourishes reached my ear, I said to myself that in Italy, accident was always romantic, and that such a figure had been exactly what was wanted to set off the landscape. It suggested in a high degree that knowledge of life for which I had just now commended the Italians. I was turning back under the old gateway when the young man overtook me and, suspending his song, asked me if I could favour him with a match to light the hoarded remnant of a cigar. This request led, as I took my way again to the inn, to my falling into talk with him. He was a native of the ancient city and answered freely all my inquiries as to its manners and customs and its note of public opinion. But the point of my anecdote is that he presently acknowledged himself a brooding young radical and communist, filled with hatred of the present Italian government, raging with discontent and crude political passion, professing a ridiculous hope that Italy would soon have as France had had her 89, and declaring that he for his part would willingly lend a hand to chop off the heads of the king and the royal family. He was an unhappy, underfed, unemployed young man who took a hard, grim view of everything and was operatic only quite in spite of himself. This made it very absurd of me to have looked at him simply as a graceful ornament to the prospect, 
an harmonious little figure in the middle distance. Damn the prospect, damn the middle distance, would have been all his philosophy. Yet, but for the accident of my having gossiped with him, I should have made him do service in memory as an example of sensuous optimism. I am bound to say, however, that I believe a great deal of the sensuous optimism observable in the Genoese alleys and beneath the low crowded arcades along the port was very real. Here everyone was magnificently sunburnt, and there were plenty of those queer-typed, mahogany-coloured, bare-chested mariners with earrings and crimson girdles that seemed to people a southern seaport with the chorus of Massaniello. But it is not fair to speak as if at Genoa there were nothing but low life to be seen, for the place is the residence of some of the grandest people in the world. Nor are all the palaces ranged upon dusky alleys. The handsomest and most impressive form a splendid series on each side of a couple of very proper streets, in which there is plenty of room for a coach and four to approach the big doorways. Many of these doorways are open, revealing great marble staircases with touchant lions for balustrades and ceremonious courts surrounded by walls of sun-softened yellow. One of the great piles in the array is coloured a goodly red and contains in particular the grand people I just now spoke of. They live indeed on the third floor, but here they have suites of wonderful painted and gilded chambers, in which foreshortened frescoes also cover the vaulted ceilings and florid mouldings emboss the ample walls. These distinguished tenants bear the name of Van Dyck, though they are members of the noble family of Brignole Sale, one of whose children, the Duchess of Galliera, has lately given proof of nobleness in presenting the gallery of the Red Palace to the city of Genoa. End of section 11